people know that feeling of feeling disoriented, of, of feeling let down and frustrated by a failure and having to kind of reframe how you see success and, and failure given that. So excited about who we have on this week. Why? Well, because they made my favorite short of all time, The Shining Star of Losers Everywhere, which then turned into the new Netflix series, Losers. Losers is great. It's on Netflix now. It's an eight-part docu-series about athletes that failed miserably. And so who are these two fascinating people who you had on? So we have Mona Ponchal. She is the executive producer of the Netflix series. And she's also an executive producer at Topic Studios, uh, which is putting out some really awesome work. Kind of feels like they came out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here they are everywhere. And yet here they are everywhere. Uh-huh. And then who else? And of course, uh, the director of the series, who also does all the animation for it, Mickey Duget. He is an illustrator by trade, a sports illustrator and made this short that you love mm -hmm. a few years ago, and it became this eight-part Netflix series, which is pretty amazing, and mm -hmm. we kind of go into that in the interview. You've been a fan for a while, right? I have. I remember... You're a I, super fan. I, I'm definitely a super fan. I remember back in 2016 when we screened Shining Star of Losers Everywhere at a video consortium gathering in New York City, the responses th that were audible, people were, ooh, and ah, and like we all just felt so bad for this poor little racehorse who was such a failure but also such a winner in a sense. Everyone loved it and I loved it and I've been following ever since and then bam came this. And so thus I am extremely excited to hear about all that you guys talked about. In the spirit of the series we talked a lot about failure and what we can all learn from loss and failure mm. because mm. it is such a common thing in our industry and as creators as creators especially you know most of it is small failures mm -hmm. and what we're learning from them right and yet we bury it you know it within the age of like instagram and all sh all the shiny things we um, bury it but yeah. we should celebrate it we should so here's to celebrating loss and failure and failure as winning <laughs> <laughs> Here we and go. Uh, here we go. This is Rough Cut. Thank you so much, Mona and Mickey, for doing this. This is very exciting. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we were just talking about the first project you guys ever worked on together, which is the short, Shining Star of Losers Everywhere, which is about a racehorse that loses every single race. And then when word gets out that the horse is like consistently losing, she becomes this like beacon of hope and sort of a symbol of persistence. Mickey, what made you want to tell that story? And Mona, how did you come on board? Well, in 2003, when I was still in art school, I read an article in The Guardian about that story. And uh, I think that the, the tone of the piece that the writer took was a little bit dismissive that, oh, look at this, like a celebration of failure and, and whatnot. But there was a little photo in the article that showed that the people that were coming to the track were people from all ages. There were older people, there were kids at the track, and I thought that something deeper was there to explore. But at the time, I was just studying to be an illustrator. I had no idea how to develop anything into anything. And so I put that, that story in a drawer for 12 years until 
many things happened, and uh, I started experimenting with animation and documentary. And uh, I think it was 2013 when I had a meeting at ESPN and pitched that story as a as an idea for a, for a short film for part of their 30 for 30 short series, and they really liked it. So they were just like, "Yeah, go go make that." What did you like about the story? Like, what kept you coming back to it? And what did they like about the story when you pitched it? Well, I thought that there were there weren't really examples of of stories like that that existed in America, where we have kind of a patron saint of perseverance. We have lovable losers, but there's we don't really look and find something dignified in loss in the same way that other countries t- uh, can sometimes. So I thought that that alone was interesting. And uh, luckily at ESPN, they also thought that there was something there that was different. So yeah, greenlit the the film. It's interesting. I feel like in the U.S. we do have stories about persistence, but at the end of that persistence, there's always a win. You know, like what's unique about this story is that there's no win. And I was, even though it's called The Shining Star of Losers, I was watching it and I was still just so programmed to expect this protagonist to win at the end. So Mona, how did you how did you get on board and, and what attracted you to the story? Well, you know, Mickey reached out to me after, you know, the project was, you know, already set up at ESPN and a friend of ours introduced us. And I think what was so interesting to me about the project was I never made anything like exactly like this before. And I was really drawn to Mickey's vision. You know, um, Mickey had a really clear idea of how he wanted to tell the story. It was a really strong point of view. And that was really exciting to me. And it was a really long process to to make the short. And, you know, the, the idea of perseverance, you know, really kept us going as we were making it. What were some of the challenges that you faced in finishing that project? And how did you persevere? Well, um, <laughs> so I had only made one short before, and it was a domestic thing. It was seven minutes. So I didn't really know what I was diving into in terms of making, even pitching an international doc. So uh, after ESPN said, great, you know, make it. And, you know, Mona and I were introduced. Then it was time to reach out to the subjects, which, you know, now I know uh, is something that we probably should have done uh, far ahead of pitching the story as being something that's makeable. And everyone at this racetrack that, uh, you know, was part of this story uh, throughout Haru Rara's rise to fame. And Haru Rara is the... Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm really surprised that I nailed that the (laughs) first try. Is the protagonist the racehorse who is consistently losing? Yes. So everyone that was at the the track who worked there and who was part of the story, they said, "Oh, I'm sorry you don't know this, but the the horse was basically abducted from our racetrack about ten years ago, and collectively we've all agreed to never speak about this story to the media ever again. So uh, thank you for your interest, but uh, we're not doing it, and the horse is still missing. Like a like a storyteller's worst nightmare. Yeah, it was a great start. <laughs> it was an oh shit moment. <laughs> really great start. <laughs> yeah. But you you pushed through it, and how did you kind of overcome that lack of access? Well. I take this approach to every story that I do that really we we try and find the dignity in the story, find what's unique and beautiful about it. So because it seemed like we had no hope, um, I started making art and uh, started writing letters to uh, to the people involved and specifically uh, Haru Rara's trainer, who's kind of the, the soul of the story. So I wrote him a, a letter just saying, you know, what we were trying to do and why we feel like an American audience would benefit from from hearing that story. Was and it like a handwritten letter? 
Yep, with a lot of uh, some drawings that I sent as well, <laughs> or a package. Did yeah. he not have an email address that you could find? No, I don't think Muneshi uh, has an email address. Uh, okay. They're, uh, yeah, it's, Kochi is a very remote place. This track is uh, has been clinging to life for a long time. It, it's not a big money uh, place. I feel like if I were to handwrite a letter to someone and put it in the mail, I would feel like it's going nowhere. Like I'm like, no one is ever going to get this. It's just such an archaic form of communication. Were you confident that you were going to reach these people? No. I, there's nothing practical about like anything in this kind of business. I think you uh, you hope for for the best, and um, you try and be as honest as possible. It's not like my reputation preceded me that they were like, oh, this person made all this great work. Um, it's really about what we were trying to do and what the ben- what the audience could could gain from it. In, in, specifically, I had read interviews with that trainer saying that he felt like it was his life's mission to share Haru Rara's story with as many people as possible because he found that her story inspired so many people. And uh, I told him, you know, there are people that I know. There are people in our audience who could benefit from hearing that story too because I felt like it was important and strong. Yeah. You said that you didn't really have any experience making something like this. You were making sports animations before and going to making this like 18-minute film. Where did you start? How did you, what was your process like in conquering something like that? Well, we we started with the story. We, we reached out to see who would participate uh, in being interviewed and put together like a little style guide. I, I love the way Japanese art looks, art and design. So we came up with this spare aesthetic. So um, all of us were aligned when we went out into the field. But it was, and of course, prepared questions for our Japanese producer who also did all of the interviews, uh, given that I don't speak Japanese. And uh, it was hard for me. I mean, I like to be as involved as possible in, in every uh, part of a production. But I'm just sitting there, you know, watching an interview happen. And uh, there was one moment in particular where the PR guy at the track, he's telling this very moving story. And both my producer and DP broke down into tears. <laughs> and I was just like, what the hell is like?" I had no idea whether it was a good thing, a bad yeah. thing or anything. So I, was, I just had to sit there, you know, not knowing. You don't know because it's in a language you don't understand. Totally. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, we had all the interviews and we had it on a drive. And when I was flying back from Japan, uh, I hoped we had it, but I didn't know. You didn't know. Yeah. And that's just like another layer of challenge. Other conversations I've had with people who are making something in a foreign language is like. You don't really know what's going on as you're making it, and you're sort of uncovering the story in post. And then also the translation, which is never 100% correct. And it's just this whole, as I said, other layer of challenge to making content. Yeah. I was waking up in the middle of the night just being like, did I get enough? Did we get it? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, I, I think I think we did. Yeah, um, yeah I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you have this short... And this turns into this Netflix series called Losers. Did you just come to Netflix and say, hey, I have this amazing short. This would be a great series. Like, how do you make this a Netflix show? Not exactly. Yeah, it's it was a journey for sure. Yeah. When I originally pitched Shining Star to ESPN in the meeting, I, I mentioned 
Uh, I always wanted to do uh, a longer series about failure in sports. As I figured out how to t develop things and, and make films and so forth, I, I realized that a lot of the stories that I had been keeping in drawers, thinking that maybe I would turn them into comics or blog posts or whatever, that actually I could find a venue for them in this kind of experimental documentary space. So I, I found that a couple of the stories that I had, uh, and some of them actually manifested into, into losers, could kind of be grouped together in this kind of survey of failure in sports, these kind of odd stories that had weird lessons and so forth. So I pitched that as the idea to ESPN. And they, they liked the idea. The first story that I told them was this ra racehorse idea. And they said, go make that. Uh, I don't blame them for being suspicious of my ability to do something, given that I'd only made a seven-minute Right. They before. want, like, a proof of concept. Yeah, yeah. totally. So yeah. went out, and like Mona said, it took us a long time to do it. I drew all the art basically on paper. It took us a year to make an 18-minute film. So even though it came out and it did very well, um, you know, by, by our standards, it premiered at Sundance. I took it up to festivals around the world. We brought it back to Japan, which was really exciting. Um, went back to ESPN and, and for a variety of reasons, some of which probably I don't know, <laughs> they decided not to go forward with the series. But it had always been discussed that if they didn't want to do it, uh, that I could take the idea elsewhere. And so, um, you know, Mona can speak to this, but after, I think it was after we uh, won Best Short at Hot Docs in 2016, she got hired here and uh, she was like, yo, you should like come in and we'll like talk about the series. You know, it was around the time, a little before the time I got hired here, you know, we... Here as in First Look Media. As, as, as in First Look, yeah. Okay. An executive who worked here saw Shining Star at South By and said, hey, this is so great. And, you know, we started talking about it and we, you know, First Look Media topic wasn't quite born yet. They kind of optioned the idea from Mickey and, you know, it was a long road of trying to figure out how we were going to develop the idea. And we, you know, we brought it to a lot of people and, you know, eventually brought it to Netflix, who got the idea like right away. Did you feel like other outlets just didn't get it? Or like, what was the You know, like problem? people, I think people have different <laughs> mandates. Um, for some people, the idea, um, like, why not do a series about winning? You know, so I think for some people, it was a little bit of a tough sell because they weren't um, necessarily understanding the idea of exactly what Mickey wanted to do and, and the way he wanted to do it. We, we originally tried to sell the series as uh, an international series of shorts. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that I had the confidence to, to go from two short films to jump up to a TV-scaled <laughs> thing. So the idea was, was to do, I think the original pitch for our first nine months was to do six episodes. Each of them would be, some would be domestic stories, but some would be international, like Shining Star was, and, uh, and that they would all have animation. So actually, I think one of the, one of the hurdles that was, was tough for us to get over was the fact that it's not the cheapest uh, series to produce, mm -hmm. especially for uh, places that are doing uh, web content, short form video, you know, the idea of licensing international archival and waiting on hand-drawn animation. You know, it's it's not like those are a, both very expensive things. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly not a right. handheld yeah, yeah. verite thing that you can knock out. That's right. So uh, the barrier to entry was challenging, and uh, yeah, that and and for some other reasons, it was just it was it was tough. And uh, you know, it was my first taste of kind of development, and you know, mm -hmm. I had people saying like, 
dude. Like you have no idea the hell that people go through. Just like keep plugging away. You know, I was I was actually like about to walk away from the entire thing um, before we decided, well, what if we scale it up? What if we like put more stories in? Why don't we think about like what this looks like in a larger package? And uh, it was shortly after that that we met with Ben Kotner. He immediately got the soul of the show that Netflix being an international platform, they weren't afraid of international stories or, or subtitles or anything like that. So it was a really, really good pairing. So you were at a point where you were about to walk away. What was going on at that time? Well, it had it had been a frustrating uh, road. A lot of it was kind of confusing to me. I don't know. I I felt like well, this was an idea that, for the reasons I just described, might be uh, tough for for people to fund, and maybe I should, you know, not try and sell a series given again, my lack of experience, and maybe I should aim for something a little bit more modest. So, I mean, ESPN, they, they didn't want to do the series, but they offered me a chance to do one more. And, uh, you know, it was, it was hard for me to sit around for, for nine months. I was taking on just, you know, little... So I, I worked as an illustrator, and I would do ads and things. So I, I did a couple jobs just to kind of hold me over, but I really had an appetite to, to get busy again. And, uh, you know, Mona can tell you I... Uh, uh, I don't have a lot of patience sometimes, so I want to I want to get out and and make things. Um, so, you know, and I think that it was around the time that Trump got elected too. So I, I felt this urgency to to make something, you know. Hmm. Um, so I was uh, I was really gonna gonna walk away, but um, I guess I'm grateful I didn't. You know, you obviously had a lot of experience as an illustrator, but very little experience as a filmmaker. Did you suffer from imposter syndrome at all? Just like suddenly becoming this filmmaker with a series for Netflix? You know, I don't. I don't have. I don't have that. I have to say. Um, That's great. Well, one thing that I I think is important in terms of making films, and given that filmmaking is a team sport, is to know your role, uh, know the thing that you can bring to the work. And certainly the animation component is something that uh, I'm very particular about that I feel like is a value add to the to the work that I do. But it's really important for me when I'm leading a team to be honest about the skills that I don't have. You know, and it, rather than feeling like an imposter who's trying to do all these things that I don't have experience doing, I look at my team, I look at the editors, I look at my producers, and I say, you know, there are things that I've never done before here, and I'm not going to pretend that I know how to do them. So I need, I need help. I need us to all, you know, carry weight in different ways. And uh, I think people appreciate that, the people that I've worked with. Um, I, I demand a very high quality. I, I mean, Mona, Mona can tell you that too. But just being honest about the things that I don't feel like I can do especially well um, is is really really important, you know. And I and I'll I'll be candid with the subjects too. Just that I don't have a lot of I don't have a ton of experience. You know, you're not going to look and you know hire and trust me with your story based on some like uh, shelf that's laden with trophies or whatever. <laughs> that's just not what I'm bringing to the table. But again, you like you make your case to the subjects. You make your case to the team. And uh, you go in hoping, you know, trusting. Yeah. What was it like to approach people for this series? 
were you just like, oh, I'm making a series about losers and we want to feature you? <laughs> you know, like, how did people react? How did you package it? Um, how did you approach people? Well, it's definitely sensitive to, to ask people to recount and relive the, you know, biggest failures or humiliations of their professional lives. Uh, but the biggest thing that informed the choices that we made in terms of who we chose for the series was that our, our subjects had, had dealt with that failure, had, had processed that failure, and had taken something positive away from that experience. And so when you know, we were doing research or initially reaching out to them, you know, their kind of second act is, is a critical part of the story. So giving them an idea of kind of the arc that we were trying to tell, where it's not just, oh, you know, we're going to swell the string music and slowly zoom in on their face as they break down crying, to, to talk about, you know, the kind of counterintuitive benefits of what came from that experience, given that, you know, culturally, I think you mentioned this earlier, we do love an underdog, but unless they don't pull it off, we yeah. just push them off the stage. <clears throat> so many of these subjects have had these failures 20, 30 years ago, and no one has really come to them to say, hey, do you think maybe in hindsight that some good came from that? And we always say that we learn more from our failures than we do from our victories. And so I thought there was a lot of wisdom there. And the subjects that participated, they got that from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do learn so much about our failures, which it's so relevant to the creative process and to making videos is you're trying and failing and trying and failing. So I'm wondering, as a creative, I imagine that you could relate to these characters in a way. Absolutely. There's there's no way to move forward without risking failure and, and plowing through failures. That That was definitely something that resonated with me. Can you give any like specific examples of times in your life that you failed or were rejected? I don't know how much time we have. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like just the ones that stand out in your head that you really learned from and and what you took away from it. Well, I can I can talk broadly that this fantasy that uh, of success of the American dream where we're going to get the job, get the girl, get the fame, get the money, like, and be on this unbroken winning streak forevermore is such a ridiculous standard to hold ourselves to in a fantasy. We've all had bad breakups. We've all not gotten the job. We've all had financial difficulties. We've all had dreams that haven't worked out. I, at one point in my life, thought that I was going to be a professional tennis player. That didn't work out. At another point, I wanted to be a successful graphic novelist. That didn't work out. You know, and those things were really, really difficult for me to, to deal with. But it's it's all part of the path. You know, like had had things worked out differently, had I gotten the opportunities that I wanted at various points, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I wouldn't have made the show. Um, so much of what makes all of us us is our moments that don't work out. And, uh, and I think that, you know, it might not be that I was – you know, in front of millions getting knocked out and, you know, my professional career was over. It might not be that dramatic, but I think that the universal thing that it, that our show is connecting to is that people know that feeling of feeling disoriented, uh, of feeling let down and frustrated by a failure and having to kind of reframe how you see success and, and failure given that. Yeah. Were there ever uh, times in your life where you really had to reframe? Like, as you said, you, you tried a lot of different things out. They didn't work out. You pitched this series to a variety of different outlets, and they didn't take it. 
How have you bounced back from that? What tools have you created that you could maybe give to other creatives to bounce back from rejection and failure? Well, I certainly feel like the soul of the show is really the answer to that question. And actually, getting to meet with and interacting with the subject in the show helped me to finish the show. (laughs) (laughs) When we had bumps along the road, you know, uh, things that felt like epic fails uh, in the moment that we had to endure. I mean, I think it's, it's really important to maintain yourself, maintain composure, maintain your integrity as much as possible, not blame others for the things that have gone awry, and really try to to make the best of an imperfect situation. If something doesn't work out, ask yourself, like, how could this be kind of a blessing in disguise? Yeah, like, you know, what, what can this teach me? Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's, if you ask yourself that through uh, difficult moments, whether big or small, uh, you'll find answers. You'll find answers. But, you know, there are plenty of examples, especially in the news, of people who are, uh, you know, dealing with things and they blame everyone around them and and play, you know, a huge victim rather than looking inside and processing and trying to find some wisdom from that. Yeah. What about you, Mona? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think um, one of the things that is so amazing about the series is how much it's resonated people from all over have responded um, to the show and they've really responded to the the spirit of the show. And in terms of, and I think as I get older and I reflect on failure and how it's kind of made me, you know, what the show has taught me and like all of those lessons have taught me, it's, it's really turning inward to my inner voice and listening more to myself and the people that are closest around me. You know, a filmmaker that I really respect, Yvonne Shirley, you know, she said something uh, that really rung like a bell, which is that community is wealth. And the people around us that are really good for us um, can help us get through those moments. And I think that um, the show really embodies that in a great, a great way, too. So, yeah, yeah, I think those are the lessons. Yeah, definitely. Could you relate to any of the individual characters in a way? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, you know, the show, there are so many incredible stories in the show. But, you know, Mickey knows that my favorite episode um, is Surya Bonnelly's story. um, and The figure skater. The figure skater, you know, and there's this moment where she is takes off her medal and stands next to the podium and she's you know called a sore loser because she's so upset at having tried her hardest like I will start to cry thinking about just thinking about that moment right now it just always shatters me um, because like you know her doing her best will never be good enough and I think that's just devastating and it's something that I think a lot of people a lot of women can relate to that yeah so I think there's a lot of really relatable moments in the series yeah and I think this was mentioned earlier and I think it's so relevant to documentary filmmaking that a lot of our guests have brought up is that if you don't love the process you're just gonna lose no matter Mm -hmm. what and I think that comes through in the series is like people love the act of doing the sport and if you don't love that then what do you really have can you relate to that at all sure yeah I think um I think generally I've been very, very fortunate in, in this business. I 
I didn't struggle for many years. Uh, as you know, when I went to film festivals, of course, you you hear amazing stories of filmmakers having to endure years of, you know, trying to find someone to find a platform for them. I I feel very very fortunate for sure. But but definitely there are there are lessons, like uh, in the event of Michael Bent, the uh, the boxer. He didn't love the process of what he was doing. He was forced into a sport against his will and was trying to find his identity and his self-esteem in a place that he didn't ever want to be. And so when his story turns, I mean, he's in a boxing match and he gets knocked out and he gets knocked into a coma. Uh, He's concussed so badly. And uh, doctors say, you know, your boxing career is over. So he really had to confront this moment where all of his identity and self-esteem and everything was mixed up complicatedly in this thing that he never wanted to do. And he came out of it um, with this uh, amazing second act in Hollywood where he's like, oh, actually, all of these things that were such a liability in my professional career, specifically showing emotion, and being vulnerable, all those things that were such a liability are now strengths in the creative world. So he felt more comfortable around creative people and also people uh, people like Mickey Rourke, as you see in the show, people like Freddie Roach. That was something that I'd never really synthesized in an elegant way, but I was like, damn, if he's not right, you know? Uh, and, and I was just talking about like being candid about my own shortcomings as, as an artist and a director with my team. Uh, so much of uh, being effective as an artist and as the leader of a team is being able to be, be candid about your own vulnerabilities. And so that's something that I really connected with Michael about, and he taught me something. It was a real yeah. gift. So um, that kind of thing happening kind of inspires me as, as an artist and a filmmaker to continue to go out into the world, even as this sort of shambolic uh, guy that I am, to try and learn things, because there's a lot to learn. I've never heard someone use the word shambolic. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adjective I want to bring into my vocabulary. Well, you, you asked me about professionalism and imposter syndrome and stuff earlier. Sometimes I can think, oh, what would a, what would an established director do? What you know, how would I like go through the world and and uh, interact with my team and with subjects? Like, what kind of gravitas should I have? Or, yeah. uh, all that, all that stuff is is crap. I mean, it's like the thing that I think I just try and keep in mind is that first of all, my my ego is not my amigo. You know, <laughs> where <laughs> no. it's not about me. It's really we're trying to do things that are in service of. The, the subjects for sure you know there are there are things like I don't know how this uh, I don't know how the equipment works I don't know how you know the the sound or I don't know all that there is to know about lighting or lenses or anything and I'm not going to pretend that I do so you know when it's a moment where I could feel exposed if someone asks me something that I don't know rather than saying rather than pretending that I know I just say like no I, I don't know and I don't know anything I don't know most things and, yeah. uh, and that's okay absolutely All right, well, thank you guys so much. Thanks, Jenny. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of Video Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. 
So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, LA, San Francisco, Washington, DC, Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email, info at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.